Well, if you heard a surefire way to avoid disaster for your family, for your company, for your church, or for your nation, I am absolutely certain that you would apply that solution to avert calamity the best you can. Unfortunately, chapter 2, verse 25 of Joel is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Old Testament, if not the Bible, because it leaves out the plan that Israel must implement in order to avoid catastrophe. Chapter 2, verse 25 is oftentimes preached and taught as a guarantee that God just wants to bless you. And chapter 2, verse 25 says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent to you. We take it oftentimes. In fact, I just heard a sermon the other day that totally left out the plan to avert disaster that an individual, a church, a company, a country must take in order to avert disaster. And they just taught that God wants to bless you and he always wants good things to happen to you. We take it as a promise to God's people that God will give you always what you lost. He will give you that and above and beyond. It's a guarantee. But they leave out the way to avert disaster in the first place. We lose relationships, we lose people, we lose money, we lose our health, and we want those things back. But how can you avoid losing them in the first place? And if you do lose them, how can you possibly recover it? In other words, it's not a guarantee that you're going to get those things back. There is a promise in this verse, that is true, it is from God, that is true, but there is a contingency, a qualifier, a condition, if you will, in order to get those things back. In Joel chapter 1, if you remember, there was a locust invasion that had devastated the agriculture of Israel. All the stratas of society were affected. And Joel made sure that Israel knew that it wasn't just because the locusts decided to invade Israel. It wasn't an arbitrary act of nature. Joel made sure that Israel knew that there was a spiritual cause for the destruction of their land. That those two truths were intricately linked. There was devastation, but why were they devastated? Well, God allowed them to be devastated because he was disciplining them. He wanted to allow them to experience a course correction. He wanted to recalibrate their settings. The answer was spiritual. In fact, he warned Israel that there could be another disaster in chapter 2. It's about that eventually did actually take place in about 100 years from Joel's time frame. He warned Israel that there would be another disaster, except it would be even larger in scope. And in chapter 1, verse 14, he told them to fast, to assemble, to listen to their leaders, and then to cry out to God. Not just pray, but cry out to God. Show some emotion. Show some connection. Show some desperation, because whether you know it or not, you're desperate people. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, he described what might take place if Israel did not do a certain thing. He described the army and what they would do if Israel stayed the course, if they continued 
in their following of their rituals without any heart, without any soul to it. That they were a very religious people. They did their sacrifices. They did their rituals. Don't change that. Don't stop doing that. But when you do them, do them with heart and emotions and do it like you really mean it because you need it so badly. So now in some detail, he tells them what they need to do. He repeats chapter one, verse 14, for the most part in chapter two, verses 15 and 16. And he, but he reminds them about God's character and attitude toward them. Look what he says in verses 12 through 17. He says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. See, that's what he's saying. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. So return to the Lord with all your heart. I want you to rend your hearts, to rip your hearts, not your clothes. What does he mean by that? Well, after college, I worked for a very small educational software company in New Jersey and had two owners. One was an atheistic guy who was raised Catholic, and the other was a devout conservative Jew. (laughs) How these two guys became business partners, I have no idea. But anyway, they were. And I liked them both. And the conservative Jewish guy, one day, he got some news that a close relative of his has passed away, an aunt or uncle. And he took his shirt pocket and he just ripped it off. Actually, there were a few threads that still allowed it to dangle from the rest of his shirt. And so he walked around the office the rest of the day with a ripped pocket. And that's what... Jews do when they hear of a death. They tear their clothes. But here Joel was telling the nation of Israel, okay, the clothing thing, that's over here. But what I really want, what you really need more than anything else, is to allow your heart to be broken. That's what you really need, Israel. And so rend your hearts, not your clothes. Blow your trumpet. And the first trumpet blast in chapter 1 was to alarm the nation of this impending invasion of Assyria. But then this alarm is for something else. It is to assemble God's people together fast. Show your devotion to God through withholding food for a time. Uh, Assemble with one another and call the elders. Implied in that is that when you call them, you're actually going to listen to them. So call your leaders and listen to them. What I want you to do is I want you to repent. And in the Hebrew, we see that showing itself all through chapter 2. So chapter 2, verse 13, if we repent, and he uses the Hebrew word for repent, shuv, if we repent and return to God with a heartfelt sense that we need to make some course corrections and we really love God and the things of God, um, then, verse, the second part of verse 13, then God may repent. It's interesting, and then the different word for repent is used. Just like Greek and Hebrew, they have different words for the same thing, just like in English, there are synonyms. But it's interesting that a different word is used. And uh, then God may relent, repent, and then it's repeated in verse 14. Then God may turn and repent. Nachem. You want to say that together? Nachem. Yeah. 
Ah, you spit on the person in front of you. Nachem. So Nachem. Shuv. If you shuv, then God will Nachem. And it's interesting, the word Nachem is dripping with emotion. Um, so if you turn, if you recalibrate, if you reset yourself, if you change your attitudes, then God will relent. God will be comforted. That's what that word also means. God will be consoled. It's interesting that the emotion goes on both sides of the fence. That's why it's a healthy, hopefully a potentially healthy bilateral relationship. That is what it's all about. It's about our relationship with God as individuals, but also in Israel's sense, also as a nation to God. They had, they were a nation of covenants, packages of promises that God had made to them. You are my people, Abrahamic covenant. It's all one-sided, it's unilateral, but I also want you to make good choices, and if you make good choices, you will be blessed, and if you make bad choices, you'll be cursed, and those curses will act as discipline for you. Mosaic covenant. Unconditional, conditional. Two covenants made with Israel, both highlighting the relationship and then, of course, the quality of that relationship or the fellowship. So the new covenant has those two sides as well. That's the relationship that God has with us and was instituted when Jesus did it at the Last Supper. And so, first of all, We need to know what we should do. We should change our attitude. We should change our mind. We should make the course correction. And if we do that, then God will do these things. He will relent. He will repent from disciplining the nation further. So if you repent right now, in a hundred years from now, Assyria is not going to attack. They'll be cut off. They will be repelled. Look what verse 17 says. It says, let the priests who minister before the Lord weep before the people porch and altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, but a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? And so this, when, when the Israelites heard this, they thought about something that had happened about roughly 400 years before. They thought about, ah, oh, this has happened before when Israel really blew it as Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai. What did he see as he was carrying the Ten Commandments? What did he see as he was carrying those tablets from on high? What did he see as he looked out to the nation? He saw Israel worshiping a golden calf. They were, they got into idol worship while he was gone. Oh, great. So then God said, to Moses, I'm going to wipe out this whole lot. And I'm going to take you, Moses, because I know you're still faithful to me. And I'm going to make a brand new nation with your descendants. And Moses said, wait, God, I repent on behalf of the nation. He stood in the gap. And he went and reasoned with God in Exodus chapter 32. He said, why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out here to this desert? To kill them in the mountains 
and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. And so what did God do? The Bible tells us that God relented. He repented. He changed his mind. But then we say, God, are you arbitrary? Are you emotional? Are you unstable? No, God changed his mind because the ground game was completely different. Because he had a representative of Israel, the representative, Moses himself, saying, God, think about what the other nations are going to say about your reputation, about your glory. God, of course, knew all along, but he could authentically change his mind because Moses, as a substitute for the whole nation, repented and changed his mind. So God responded. We see the same pattern here in Joel chapter 2, that Israel, if you change your mind, if you repent of your hard-hearted ways, that you do all the rituals, you do all the right things, but you have no heart, you have no sincerity, if you change your mind and do a course correction, God will change his mind too. If you shuv, God will nachem. God will also change his mind as well because God's reputation brings about the glory of God. So let's talk about repentance for a little bit because this is another um, misunderstood concept in Scripture. Oftentimes it's misused, just like Joel chapter 2, verse 25. So there are three uses of repentance in Scripture. We'll get to the first one later on. Sometimes it's used for the non-believer's admission of sin. And that's exactly what repentance is. Is repentance a requirement of salvation? Yes, but you have to have the right definition and you have to reject the wrong definition. Oftentimes we take repentance based upon a couple, you know, especially like Acts 2.38 and Acts 3.19 to say, okay, so in order to authentically become a Christian, you have to change your ways. You have to have success and victory over your sins before you can truly be saved. And Jody Dillo wrote this about that idea. He says, if one defines repentance as an admission of guilt, repentance is clearly necessary for salvation. Because you have to be aware that you're a sinner before you can search for a Savior and actually accept the Savior named Jesus. And so an admission of guilt is really what repentance is. It means metanoia. It means change of mind. It doesn't necessarily mean change of behavior, although it could. But its usage determines meaning, and it's usually used as a change of mind about something. Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, change your mind about your sin. Change your mind about who Jesus is and what he's done. Ah, okay. I'm a sinner, so I need a savior. And Jesus is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man at the same time, died for the sins of the world. If he wasn't God, he couldn't die for more than just himself. But he's infinite, so he could die for the sins of the world. So he's 100% man, 100% God. And he can be your savior if you place your faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin. But then again, what does repentance mean? If one defines repentance as turning away from every known sin in order to become saved, That is not the biblical meaning of the word and the concept of repentance. The first reflects an attitude associated with recognition of one's need for a savior from sin. The latter is an action or a work. In fact, you really can't successfully have victory over sin before you're saved. 
You've got to be saved first. Because you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you. In fact, you don't even know what your sins are. You just know that you're a sinner and you're a mess and you're spiritually bankrupt. So you need a Savior to reconnect you back to God. He goes on to say, repentance is not a promise to God that one will change or submit to his lordship. It is an expression of a desire for a new way of life, an admission of one's need for a savior. For example, the African chief does not have to promise God he will get rid of his 19 of his 20 wives as a condition for receiving personal salvation. A prostitute does not have to promise God she will never turn another trick. And the heroin addict does not have to commit never again to shoot up. Jesus accepts their admission of wrongdoing and their desire to change. And he says, in essence, to them, these things are not the issue right now, that behavior. We need to get to these things later. And believe me, we will. But right now, I love you and I want to give you a new life and forgiveness will be granted to you without cost, except for the cost of Jesus. I like the way Charles Ryrie defines repentance. He says that. The repentance that is necessary for salvation is the flip side of faith. So as you move toward your unsaved position, toward Christ as the solution, you're not only moving toward Christ, you're moving away from this position that before you believed that your sins could meet your needs. But you see, that is the why they, why they call it good news. Because your sins will not meet your needs. God's graces will meet your needs. God's graces will meet your needs. And God's grace is what will teach you to say no to ungodliness. Biblical Christianity is the only faith, the only system of belief, the only philosophy, if you will, That says that. Everybody else says, you really gotta work yourself out of this. You gotta, you gotta contribute to your salvation. If not, do it all yourself. Biblical Christianity is the only one that's, that teaches this. Help us not distort that beautiful message. And that is precisely why they call it good news. Because if it was through any other means, any other way, it would not be good news. Because it would be contingent upon our performance and our character. And we don't have either one in very good shape. It is based upon the character and work of Jesus instead. See? So will God change us? Yes, he will. I hope he does. But how much by when? I can't answer for anybody. A good contemporary example would be Norma Jean McCorvey. I mean, she had some very stark sin in her life. She was the woman, she was the Roe in Roe versus Wade. So she was a young woman at the time. Um, she was pregnant, and she wound up having the child, by the way, but they used her as the test case in the infamous Roe v. Wade decision of 1973. And so Norma Jean McCorvey was... Was, was a person who believed abortion was fine in all nine months, and she also was a lesbian. She lived a lesbian lifestyle. And so, I, irony of ironies, the person that led her to the Lord was Flip Benham, who was the leader of Operation Rescue. Can you believe it? But that's a fact. So he led her to the Lord, but she still believed at that point in time that lesbianism was okay and that abortion was fine in all nine months. 
She still believed those things very firmly. But then a couple of years go by and she said, you know, abortion really is murder. In fact, I've come to that conviction so strongly that I'm actually going to involve myself in pro-life rallies and tell people that I was wrong 50 years ago. So she repented of her wrong belief about abortion. And then a few years after that, she repented of her lesbianism. So God changed her. She, she probably through her own power and strength could not have brought those changes about. But because now the Holy Spirit of God indwelled her, God was in the process of transforming her. And so the overwhelming usage of repentance in the Bible pertains to believers, not non-believers. In fact, the first and third one emphasize either individual believers or groups of believers. Israel was called upon to repent of their sins, of their wrong beliefs, over and over again in the Old Testament, including the book that we're studying, the book of Joel. And so then, who does this apply to? Who does this repentance reply to, apply to? Well, it's national repentance. It's the national repentance of Israel. Everybody's included. Look what the second part of verse 16 and then into 17 says. It says, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Leave the, the bridegroom his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Every strata of society, everybody in that culture needed to participate in repentance. The elders, the children, even the babies, the priests, and the newlyweds. This was job one for the nation of Israel. That they needed to change their ways. They needed to change their mind and reject this false belief that their sinful ways could truly meet their needs. So, have some humility with a changed mind. That's the desired outcome for believers. A national repentance. And so group repentance is necessary to avoid calamity. That's the, that's the contingency. That's the condition that a lot of teaching about Joel 2.25 leaves out. <laughs> you have to change something in order for God to bless you. And in fact, groups have changed their minds about evil practices all through human history. Many nations have changed their minds about the awful institution of slavery. In fact, William Wilberforce, back in the 1800s, he, late 1700s, early 1800s, he was a member of British Parliament. And for 40 years, this guy strove to make slavery illegal in the British Empire. And every year, he'd put bills before the parliament, encouraging everybody to vote against slavery in the British Empire. And year after year, he'd lose. Sometimes it was by close margins, sometimes it was by landslide. He'd lose every year. But every year, he'd go back and say, no, we need to pass this bill. And one year, he finally won. And the reason why he did that is because he's a Christian. Because how, how is it that one man could own another man, especially two Christians? That just defies, and we see that portrayed in the book of Philemon. So Philemon and Onesimus were brothers, so how could one own the other? It's illogical. It doesn't make sense. And so as a result, nations repented of their wrong beliefs on slavery. Japan and Germany repented of their wrong beliefs about fascism. 
Even churches can repent. Any group can repent. The Worldwide Church of God, about 40 or 50 years ago, used to be a cult. Herbert W. Armstrong had a massive church organization. And then he died, and his son, Garner Ted Armstrong, took over, and he he looked at their doctrinal statement, and he says, you know what we are? We're a cult. (laughs) We need to say what the Bible says about who Jesus is. We need to adopt what the Bible says about what how you get saved and everything else. We need to go Bible and not cult. And so they repented. They're a lot smaller organization now, but they repented nonetheless. Our nation, hopefully can repent on its sins. So this is why the church must speak on issues of life and human sexuality and liberty. Because like it or not, we're the conscience of the nation, the world. And the reason why is because we answer to an objective standard. Nobody else does. The media, higher education, the government, they're not going to be the conscience of the nation. We are, the church is, because we're the only ones who... Answer to a higher objective standard. So when groups repent, when they do that, whether it's for salvation or whether it is for getting closer to God, then, then God responds with mercy. That's when he replies. That's when he answers. Between the time when the locusts attacked and when the Assyrians would invade, that Assyrian attack could be replaced by blessing if they just responded correctly to God's discipline. Because, you see, God's response is all based upon who he is. It's all based upon his character. Look what it says in verse 13. It says, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? Well, because he is gracious and he is compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. The reason why he repents, the reason why he wants to change his mind about the discipline that you need is because of his character. He can change the way he is going to go based upon a change in the ground game, upon our attitude. See, this is the the great thing about our God. It's his character. It's his attributes that determine what he's going to do. He's not arbitrary. He's not an emotional preteen. He's God. And you could almost say, well, God is actually predictable. He's very complex. We don't understand him. But one thing we can determine is that he's not arbitrary. He is actually predictable because he tells us, What he's going to do. And he tells us more than just once or twice. He tells us repeatedly what he's going to do if we act a certain way. And so God will bless and protect the land. Look what it says in verses 18 through 22. He says, then God will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. Then, not before, but then, if we do what is necessary between verses 12 and 17. Then the Lord will reply to them, verse 19, I am sending you grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern army far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land with its front columns going into the eastern sea and those on the rear onto into the western sea. And its stench will go up. Its smell will rise. Why? Well, because there will be a lot of 
dead bodies. Surely he has done great things. Be not afraid, O land. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Be not afraid, O wild animals, for the open pastures are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit, and the fig tree and the vine yield their riches. So God will bless and protect the land if you folks would just change your mind, change your direction. God will protect the land. And he goes on to verse 23, and he says, Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you a teacher for righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. So physical food will be plentiful. Whatever you lost in the past will be replaced. But there is an important condition, contingency, that you must repent. You've got to change your minds. When I was in high school, I had a biology teacher named Mr. Yarmack. And I can remember absolutely nothing about biology. But he taught us, he taught us how to take notes. And he said, when I say note, mention the fact that. I don't know where he came up with that expression, but we knew that expression. Note, mention the fact that so-and-so. What you're to do in your notebooks is you are to write the word note in bold letters and then put some asterisks next to it and underscore it and then write down what I am going to tell you. And we did that. And the reason why was because he was telling us this is going to be on the test. So Joel here is saying, note. Mention the fact that you must change your minds. Otherwise, if you don't, there'll be an even bigger calamity. But if you do, there will be great blessing. And that is when God will restore to you that which the locusts have taken away. And not any time sooner than that. Repentance is necessary for this to take place. And then finally in verse 27, it says, Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. In the final analysis, it is about God's glory and it is about His presence. He is the standout God among the nations. No other God is like Him. His relationship to them now is as essential as it was to them in Moses' day. What He's doing there in verse 27 is reminding them about the Mosaic covenant that had taken place for maybe close to 500 years before. Nothing has changed in that regard. That God's blessings are widespread and numerous when believers change their minds. 
There are two major time periods that we change our minds in the hope for transition from being unsaved to saved. And at the moment that we place our faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, a whole bunch of things take place in our lives. We don't feel them, but they are nonetheless facts that we have to believe and trust in. We have an alive spirit. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Our spirit is ignited with life for the first time in our existence. We're baptized, we're indwelled and sealed by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. We're given spiritual giftedness. We're able to put into action that which God has allowed us to do and build up other believers, whether it be the gift of administration or the gift of giving or the gift of physical helps or the gift of teaching or preaching or whatever it might be. We're finally at peace with God. There's no more enmity between God and us. We're his children now. Before, Paul says, you know what you were before you were saved? You were children of wrath, but now you're children of God. You're given the righteousness of Christ that is put into your account. So when God the Father sees you, he sees the purity and holiness of Jesus. You become a part of the body of Christ. You have brothers and sisters. If you were an only child, not anymore. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You now also have the amazing ability to interpret Scripture, even though you you, you barely have read it. Why? Well, because that Ph.D. who's unsaved, he looks at Scripture and he sees only the history, only the grammar, only the content. But when you look at Scripture, in your humbled state, you see how you and I have to respond to it. And so life change happens. So we understand scripture. So the first major time when we have to change our mind about something and someone is the transition from being unsaved to saved. But then most of the usage of repentance is for people who are already believers, whether it be Israel or whether it be the New Testament believer. And then there is a whole nother storehouse of graces or gifts that are available to us. And so we have to comprehend them. We have to know what they are. And then we can apprehend them because we need them more than we think we need them. And so there's unconditional giftedness. And so everything in this first block here is referred to in the previous slide. But then there's future unconditional gifts that are just given to us. We will get a Resurrection body! Yay! yay. No more of this decrepit, declining body that gets sick and has aches and pains. We'll have a resurrected body like that of Jesus. But then there's another category of gifts that we have to cooperate with. We have to know about them. We have to cooperate. I, I, God and I are at peace, but you know what? I also want the type of peace more consistently than At 11 o'clock at night, when I'm about to lay my head on the pillow, I want to be at peace in my mind, too. I want that, too. But I've got to make some adjustments in order to really experience that. Unity is something that we don't create. It's something that we maintain. It's a gift from God, but we can mess it up. Purpose in life. I've got to know what my purpose is. I've got to know what I'm supposed to do. My walk of faith relationships in the body of Christ. I've got to cultivate them and be intertwined more. So 
I allow these other people to irritate me sometime. But then, you know, at the end of the day, I'm loyal and committed to them because they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. So I've got to interact with them. I've got to increasingly experience victory over your, you have to, you and I have to experience victory over our sin patterns, which are quite different from person to person. Then the more we realize God's graces, that is what teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's not legalism. It's not self-effort. It's replacing our sin pattern with the graces of God. And that's what really changes us from the inside out. And then finally, there are the rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and our role in the future state in the millennial period. So God's blessings are widespread and numerous when believers change their minds, whether in the transition from non-believer to believer or whether it is in the time of our lives when we are believers. It's a continual pattern and process of confessing and repenting and changing our minds about things, getting rid of the, the way we used to believe about something from the way we were raised or from maybe our former religious experience to now conforming to what the Bible says. So does God want to bless us? Does God want to restore that which was lost in this previous awful discipline of a locust plague? You bet he does. But it requires response from us. God isn't just going to automatically restore those things. He reminds us, hey, this is a relationship. It is bilateral. It's two-way. And I do care about the decisions you make. I do care about your choices. And for your own good, I want to protect and provide for you. I want you to increasingly choose my way and not the way of the world or the way of your flesh. And so when you do that, I will give you great graces. I will give you gifts because he is a God who is generous and compassionate and who wants to bless his children. So let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together to reset our minds, to get another adjustment as we might go to a chiropractor to get an adjustment. We come here to get an adjustment too, but it's in our souls, not so much our bodies. And so, Father, help us to receive that course correction and to make it more of a part of our daily relationship with you, to repent of wrong beliefs and accept the truth as it is outlined in Scripture. Thank you for being a God who is not just able to bless us, but who is willing to. Help us to know what our part of the relationship that is needed. And I pray, Father, that we will more consistently put that into practice. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.